Well, our text this morning is from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. If you have an ESV Bible, turn to that passage. If you don't, there are some discrepancies in this morning's text. So grab the Pew Bible, and you'll find our text on page 983. If you want to hold that ESV in one hand and your NIV or King James or whatever it is in the other, man, that's just going to help you study better. So do it. Page 983 there in your pew Bibles. If you're new with us, my name's Dustin. I'm the new pastor here, and my job is to show you God's Word. And so that's what I'm here to do this morning as, as we gather to hear from God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner pleasing of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word. God bless you when you read his word this week. Well, last week we saw that that Paul thanked God in his prayers for the Colossians because their hope was set in Christ. And that hope had begun to bear fruit in their lives. If you'll remember, that fruit was their faith in Christ and their love for those whom Christ loves. This week, we'll see that Paul wants even more than that. He wants more for this church in Colossae. He wants to see them mature in their faith. And he knows, he knows that Christian maturity only comes from God. And so he prays to God that he would give that maturity to this church. And that is what we're going to study today. We're going to study that prayer of Paul. Now, I want you to notice something here before we get too tied up in the text. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is linked to his thanksgiving. His petition is linked to his thanksgiving. He thanked God for those, for who they were in Christ, and how that had become evident in their lives. And then he pleads with God, essentially saying, God, help them to continue in that. Let them continue in their faith. In verse 9, at the very beginning, Paul says, from the day we heard, from the, from the day that, that he heard about these, these young Christians, he's not ceased to pray for them. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Every time he thinks about this church, he prays for them. Every time he, he walks, it'd be the, kind of the same as us when we drive by a church in our neighborhood. Maybe that's not our church. We drive by and we think about them and we pray for that church. So when Paul thinks about this church, he prays for them. He says, Father, grow them up in Christ, grow them, mature them, prepare them, shape them. 
That's his prayer. But how do we typically pray? Our tendency is to pray when there are emergencies, isn't it? Health emergencies and financial emergencies and marriage crises and family crises and ministry crises. Our grown kids have, have run into some sort of trouble. Some area of our life is out of control. And so we go to God and we ask God to have mercy on this situation, whatever it is, that he would perform miracles to fix a problem that's been years in the making. And God certainly has the power to do that. He can do that, can't he, church? Amen, he can. And in many cases, he does. But in most cases, he doesn't. And we can think in, in those moments, God, you've gone silent. We can think he's not there, that he's not answering our prayers. But that's not true. We, we, we have to learn something that old Elijah had to learn. If we want to see God at work, it's not usually going to be in mighty winds or fire or earthquakes. It's going to be in that low whisper. If we're always looking for miracles and we're always asking for miracles, we're going to miss out completely on the everyday ways that God is working. And the way that he's working in us. And when, you, when we miss that, we're missing out on opportunities to grow in our thankfulness towards him. So church, if we want to see more clearly where God is working, we need to look through the lens of scripture. If we're reading God's word, and we're echoing his heart back to him in prayer. We're going to see that God is answering those prayers. And that will confirm our faith and affirm our belief in what he's doing. And that will be an encouragement to us. So what everyday nonstop prayer do we see Paul praying? What should we regularly be praying for? Look at verse 9 again. Paul's asking when he prays to God. He's asking, he's telling the Colossians, when I pray for you, I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Through a wisdom and understanding that come from the spirit, Paul wants the Colossians to know this. God's will for them. What does he mean by that? God's will. We pray that sometimes. God, show me your will. Show me where I should go to college. Show me what my major should be. Show me whether I should marry this girl or not. Show me when I should retire. Sometimes we're asking God to show us his will in these really particular areas, and we're ignoring all of these ways that God has clearly revealed his will to us in Scripture. So what is God's will? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God. Okay, what is it? Your sanctification. 
That's another word for your growth in Christ-likeness. In Romans 12, 3, the will of God is that we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. In Ephesians 5, 17, the will of the Lord is that we would carefully consider our walk in Christ and be filled with the Spirit. See, when Paul talks about the will of God, what he means is the way of living that God desires his people to live. So in this general sense, his will for you this morning is the same that it was for the Colossians. And it's, it's the same will he has for Christians in Nigeria right now who are suffering for their faith. And it's the same will he has had for all Christians at all times. What is his will? Look to his word, and you'll see it. I think it, it's hard for us in our culture to understand this because we approach Christianity like special snowflakes. That's not just millennials. It's all of us. We think we're special. If we think that God's will should be formulated and adjusted to fit our uniqueness and our particular cultural circumstances, we're, we're missing the point. It's a lot easier to grasp this if we think big picture. Okay, so think big picture with me. As in, what does it look like to live in Christ? That's the question we should be asking. That's what it means to seek God's will. And Paul's prayer is that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they know what it looks like to live in Christ. And he prays that knowing that, he prays that knowing that what they need is this. They need spiritual wisdom and understanding. They need spiritual wisdom and understanding to know God's will, to know how to follow Christ. Now, why is that? Why, why these things? Well, wisdom is knowing how to live. Right? That's, that's the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to live. Spiritual wisdom is knowing how to live according to the Spirit. We can acquire worldly wisdom without prayer, right? That, that just comes from experience. Worldly wisdom knows how to get ahead in the world. Spiritual wisdom, though, is different. It's knowing how to live by the Spirit according to the Spirit. And we only get that through prayer, through asking for it. We see this coming to life in verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. If we have this spiritual wisdom, and it helps us to know and understand God's will and how we should live, look what happens then. We then will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. These are the four characteristics of someone who is being shaped by spiritual wisdom and understanding. Someone who is growing in their knowledge of God's will for them. Now, I don't want you to look at this as an exhaustive list. It's not that at all. More could be said, much more could be said about someone who is growing in Christ-likeness, growing in, in maturity. 
But these four characteristics will be present. They will be present. Let's look at them again. Their walk is worthy of the Lord. Their walk is pleasing to the Lord. The fruit of their union with Christ is good works. And they are increasing in the knowledge of God. You see those four things there in the text? Let's look at these in order and examine them. First, what does it mean to have a walk or to live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, if you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you are unified with Christ, it's no longer you who lives. Your old identity is gone. You've died to yourself, and you're now alive in Christ. The old self has gone. The new self has come. The new self is the body of Christ. And we'll talk about them more when we get to chapter 3. But for now, if you're a Christian, when outsiders see you, they should see you as representatives of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. So Paul prays for spiritual wisdom and understanding the knowledge of God's will because that's what they need to represent Jesus Christ well. That's what you and I need to represent Christ well. We walk in a manner worthy of his name. Since it's still kind of fresh on our minds, at least mine, maybe this is old news now, we've moved on to other things. I don't read Us Weekly, so I don't know. Think of the recent royal wedding and, and what it's like to be a person formerly known as Meghan Markle, but who is now, can't say it, Duchess of Sussex. <laughs> Meghan married into kind of a famous family, didn't she? She now is to live in a manner worthy of the royal name. She is to walk as if she were a royal, because that's who she is now. She didn't earn the royal title that came through marriage, but she does have an obligation to grow in that role. It is expected of her that she would walk in a manner worthy of the royal name. Now, you know where I'm going with this. Likewise for us, we have married into a very famous family. And we are to walk worthy of that name, Jesus Christ. We don't earn that name. We've been given it by grace through our union with Christ. But we grow in our ability to walk in a way worthy of our new identity. Do you see what Paul's getting at now? Now the second characteristic of someone who is growing in the knowledge of God's will, is that their walk, their life is pleasing to him. Do you see that in verse 10? Their life is pleasing to him. Now we, we need to be careful here. And I'm going to tiptoe through this. This can cause great confusion. So I want to be clear with you, church. Your good behavior isn't what is pleasing to the Lord. Jesus does not have a frowny face on when you act bad and a smiley face on when you act good. He doesn't love us more when we behave and less when we misbehave. 
That is not the type of pleasing that Paul is talking about. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. You see, this is a glory issue. It's not a morality issue. Let me show you what I mean. From eternity past, so even before creation began, the Spirit's job, the Holy Spirit's role in the Trinity has always been to glorify, to direct glory from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. The Son glorifies the Father through the Spirit. The Father glorifies the Son through the Spirit. It is this eternal picture of completeness, of perfect love that God has within Himself. And when we are brought into Christ through the Holy Spirit, we get to participate in that fellowship. We're in, invited into Christ to bring glory to Christ whose every desire is to bring glory to the Father. So how do we glorify Christ? Well, we don't do it on our own. Church, we cannot do it on our own. Remember, bringing glory to Christ is whose job? It's the Spirit's. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit brings glory to Christ through us. So we live by the Spirit so that our lives would glorify, glorify Christ and the more Christ is glorified in us, the more He is pleased. Because when He is glorified, the Father is glorified. So it is the Spirit working in us that pleases Christ. It's not our good behavior. But it just so happens that the Spirit's working in us has this outward appearance of, of what? What does Paul say? Good works. Those good works are the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. We don't have time to expand on this right now. But church, today, I want, I'm going to give you homework. Read John 15, 16, and 17 when you get home. Read it twice. This will take you 15 minutes. So I don't want to burden your Lord's day. You'll still have time to watch the Padres lose. <laughs> As you're reading John, I want you to notice how often Jesus talks about glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying Him and the Spirit glorifying the Son. And we, as Christians, through abiding in Christ, we get to participate in that. Read those chapters today. So the Spirit is working in us, and the Lord sees this, and it pleases Him because it brings Him glory, which brings the Father glory. Now the third characteristic, we've already hinted at it, the third characteristic of this maturing Christian is that they are bearing fruit in every good work. See, fruit is the evidence of the Spirit's work in us and through us as he glorifies Christ in us. Fruit here in this passage is described as good works. Good works in the life of a Christian are evidence that the Spirit is working. Don't miss that. Good works in the life of a Christian are evidence that the Spirit is working. In John 15, one of those chapters you're going to read today, 
you're going to see Jesus use this metaphor of a vine and branches. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. And as we abide in Jesus Christ, as he is our hope, and our gaze is on him, the Holy Spirit works through us. He's like the sap flowing through the vine to the branch, and the branch begins to produce fruit. The, the root of our salvation is Jesus Christ. The fruit of our salvation is good works. Do not mix up the roles that the vine and the branches have in this. It'll make you a legalist like that. And it's not the gospel. You've got to keep them straight. The branch isn't on the ground all by itself bearing fruit. And so the vine says, I like that good little fruit bearing branch. And I want it to be a part of my vine. No, the branch is first grafted into the vine by grace, not by its fruit bearing ability. And then because it's connected to the vine, then it begins to bear fruit. It's not because of the branch in herself that she bears fruit, but because of her relationship to the vine. You see that dynamic at work? You've got to get that to get the gospel. Apart from the vine, the branch can do nothing. The fruit is evidence of the branch's attachment to the vine, evidence of the Holy Spirit's work flowing from the vine to the branch. In other words, Christian, let me put it in plain words for you. Your good work is not what puts you in God's favor. We don't do good work and are then blessed with salvation. Your good work is a result of God's favor towards you. It is the fruit of the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. A Christian, an authentic Christian, will bear fruit. There will be evidence of a Christian's union with Christ. And that evidence here in this passage is good works. There's one more thing that we see happening as the Spirit works in us, growing us in the knowledge of God's will. We walk in a manner worthy of his name. Our lives are pleasing to him. We bear fruit and good works. And then look what he says. We also increase in the knowledge of God. Increase in the knowledge of God. Not his will. That was our starting point. But we actually know God better as we grow in Christ. His character, his goodness, and his holiness, and his mercy, and his grace. We grow in our knowledge of who God is as we are led along by the Spirit in wisdom and understanding of his will. In the same way that there will be external evidence of your life in Christ, that's the fruit that we talked about, there will also be internal evidence your awareness of God's glory will increase. And as your knowledge of him increases, your love for him increases, and your desire to obey him increases. And as your desire to obey him increases, your walk in Christ better reflects the work of the Spirit in you. And you bear more fruit. 
And as you bear more fruit, you increase in the knowledge of him. Do you see the circle? And it keeps going. And it keeps going. And the Christian keeps growing and growing. And Christ is more and more glorified in your life. If you're here and you're thinking, Dustin, I have not seen any of this growth in my life. I come to Sunday school. I know about the Bible. I know the stories. I know about God. But there's been no progress in spiritual wisdom and understanding in my life. I look no more like Christ than I did 30 years ago. I'm still just as ornery and gossipy and selfish and greedy as I was the first day I walked into a church. If that describes you, we need to talk. It doesn't matter if you are a deacon or an usher or a Sunday school teacher or you're in the choir or you serve on a committee. It doesn't matter what you're doing here. You can be really busy doing things in the church and not be rooted in Jesus Christ. If you're not growing in your love for Christ and your willingness to obey him and your knowledge of him, and your hatred of your own sin, and your love for the things he loves, and your thankfulness of, for his grace towards you, if those things aren't increasing, you're not growing. And that's a problem. It's a problem because an organism that is not growing is dead. If there's no growth, there's no life. And before you get too discouraged, listen, I'm telling you these things because I love you. And here's what I want you to do today, in addition to reading John 15 through 17. This evening, I want you to sit down with your spouse or a close friend, someone that knows you well. And I want you to ask them honestly, to describe the ways that they have seen you grow in Christ over the past five years. De describe the ways that they've seen you grow in Christian maturity over the last several years. Hopefully they see something that you don't. And, and I'm willing to reckon they will. Maybe they've seen the way that you used to treat them has changed. Maybe they've seen you become less impulsive and more self-controlled. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Maybe they see a humility in you that's hard for you to see because of humility. Maybe they've seen you grow less fearful and more trusting in Christ. But listen, if you ask that question, if you're willing to ask that question, and then they just stare at you, and they blink, and the crickets start chirping. I want you to ask this, why? Why has there been no growth in Christian maturity in my life? Why is it that I don't cherish Jesus more than I did a decade ago? Why is it that I'm no more obedient to him than I was five years ago? Could it be 
Could it be that your hope was never in Christ to begin with? Your hope and identity instead could be in your career. They could be in your marriage or your kids or the recognition you get from others. Could be in your political party. When you find where your hope is, and if you see that it's not Jesus himself, well, that's your problem. Let's address this together. That's why we're here together as a church. That's why we gather together, that we can encourage one another in these things. Come talk to me this week. Let's pray together. This is not something to put off till later. Your eternity is at stake. Do you understand? Paul asks for this growth in the Colossian church because he knows they're going to need this type of growth for the walk that they have in front of them. He knows that that Christians must be mature in their faith in order to meet the trials that are going to come their way. And so in addition to those four characteristics we see that will develop, Paul has these three additional requests that he makes on behalf of the church. If you're following your notes, we're in our last section now. And he begins this request by asking that they would be strengthened by God's power. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, why would he pray for such a thing? What do we need the power of God for? For miraculous healings? For influence in high places? Is is Paul calling on the power of God so that a new Caesar, more favorable to the Colossian church, would be installed in Rome? Look with me at at what Paul thinks and believes that this church needs the power of God for. All endurance and patience with joy. All endurance and patience with joy. In the face of difficulty, we need God's power so we can just endure in our faith. So that we can be steadfast. We need God's power so we will not give up, so we will not look outside the gospel. And we need patience to keep looking forward to our hope in Christ, even when it seems like his coming is a long way away. You see, even though there is a major crisis happening in Colossae, and there is, Paul doesn't ask God to take that crisis away. He's not praying against difficult life situations. He's praying for their spiritual preparation so that no matter what happens, it will be just another day for them to glory in Christ and be thankful for the union they have with Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Here's Paul. He's an apostle. And he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit to cast out demons and to heal the sick. But when he thinks about the day-to-day needs of this church, he prays that they'd be empowered, that they'd have strength from God himself to joyfully endure in their faith and be patient as they wait for the Lord. Doesn't that seem mundane? You see, Paul knows that Christian endurance and patience with joy require God's power. 
Because on our own, we are neither enduring in the faith nor patient. On our own in the flesh, we are prone to wonder from the hope that God sets before us. We are prone to look to our own abilities and to our own strengths to get us through difficulty. And Paul knows if we do that, we fail. We will give up on our faith if it is not God preserving us and giving us endurance. Friends, we cannot white-knuckle the Christian life. We will stray. We don't have the ability in us to patiently keep our sights set on Jesus Christ. We will look to other things. Many of you have experienced this. I've experienced this. We can be distracted from, even, from, from looking towards the gospel, from looking to Jesus Christ. We can be distracted by even very good things. Things, things like our families, things like our marriages, our kids can take the place of Jesus Christ in our lives. And our grandkids can take the place of Jesus Christ in our lives. So Paul prays for the Colossians, and I'm paraphrasing, says, God give them endurance in their faith. When they meet difficulty, don't let them think that you've abandoned them. When they meet trials, don't let them think that the gospel is false or inadequate, but give them endurance. When they are tempted to replace your gospel with their own version of it, keep them centered on Christ and his work. God give them patience as they look forward to Christ. Don't let them stray when it seems King Jesus is never coming back. Keep them hoping in his return. Keep them looking forward to his return. How can we pray a prayer like that for one another? When someone in our church meets difficulty, our prayer should not be, God, take this trial away, take this difficulty away. If our prayer is to reflect God's heart, our prayer will be this, Father, give our sister endurance in this trial. Let her faith be strengthened by this. Let her witness to others grow as a result of this. Let your name be glorified in our sister as she endures this trial. Keep her, her hope set on Jesus Christ and help her to be patient. Don't let her hope be in the temporary removal of pain, but in the eternal joy set before her in Jesus Christ. You see the difference? Endurance and patience with joy. Now there's a third trait that Paul is praying for. Something he knows that they're going to need as they are maturing in their faith. Something else that he believes will be increasing by necessity as they mature in Christ. Do you see what that is there at the beginning of verse 12? Look with me. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father. He wants them to be giving thanks to the Father. Paul's prayer is that the Colossians be a thankful people. He even says what it is that they have to be thankful for. Look, with, look what it is here. Giving thanks to the Father who, that's the Father, He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about their salvation. Paul wants the Colossians to be thankful to the Father for their salvation. But he doesn't doesn't describe salvation in the way that we're used to it. He doesn't say, be thankful to the Father that Jesus lives in your heart. He doesn't say, be thankful to the Father for your personal relationship with Jesus. And in fact, those two phrases are not in the Bible. This is bigger than that. Your salvation is bigger than that. Look again at how Paul describes salvation here. It is being qualified by God the Father to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What is this inheritance? Well, we talked about this last week. The inheritance is what is stored up for us in heaven. What Jesus is bringing down at his return. It is a new creation body that will dwell we will have as we dwell in the new creation with him. And already, look what's happened already in verse 13. Already something of cosmic importance has happened. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where you used to live when you were a slave to your own desires, a slave to selfish ambition and self-glory. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. You you see the picture? Delivered, transferred into the kingdom. We already live in the kingdom of his beloved son if we're in Christ. And there, in Christ, we have redemption, he says. There in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. I, I love the cosmic picture. This is one of my favorite Bible verses. And if you can see that I'm excited, I am. Don't you see? Do you see how this magnifies the Father and His glory and His power and His authority? And it magnifies the Son in His reign over the kingdom? Church, doesn't that just make you feel small? It does me. It is my prayer that we as a church would feel small. That we would feel insignificant. That we would feel unimportant and little. And we would be humbled when we look at the glory of what God has done and what He has allowed us to participate in. And how alone we could never accomplish any of these things. It is good to feel small. Itty bitty, isn't that a song? It's all right to be itty bitty. (laughs) Am I the only country guy here? (laughs) And Paul is praying to God, Father, make them thankful for what you've done. That's his prayer. Let them be overwhelmed with thankfulness that you, Father, are the giver of salvation. When we, through God's word, when we begin to see what God has really done in saving us and what he's doing in maturing us and keeping us, church, our prayers are going to be influenced by that. It is inevitable. When we see that what's in front of us as a church is not a battle against flesh and blood, It's not a battle against cancer or dementia 
or fires or floods or earthquakes, but it is a battle against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers who are ruling over the darkness. When we realize that, that's going to change how we pray. When we see that there is a danger that is more real than cancer or broken bones or physical pain, more dangerous than losing our jobs or chickenpox, when we see through God's word that there is a cosmic battle raging and we've been called to arms, and one of our most powerful weapons is prayer, church, that's going to change how we pray. God moves. He works through the prayers of his saints. And if we want to see him working, pray the prayers of the Bible. And pray those for your missionaries. And pray for your pastors. Pray for one another. Pray for other congregations all over the world. Open up Colossians 1. And pray verses 9 through 14 for them. And we'll see God answer prayer, church. Would you pray with me now?